Welcome to What We Give, a podcast that highlights the remarkable ways people are contributing to our community. I'm John McKay, the Member of Parliament for Scarborough Gilwood. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Jeffrey Schiffer, the Executive Director of Native Child and Family Services of Toronto. He has Métis and German ancestry, but was born and raised in the unceded Coast Salish Territory in what is today Vancouver. He has a PhD in anthropology and conducts community-based research and program development with Indigenous communities in Canada and Central America. Dr. Schiffer is a member of the board of directors of several impact-driven organizations like Child Welfare League of Canada and the Association of Native Child and Family Service Agencies of Ontario. He also chairs the City of Toronto's Aboriginal Affairs Committee. Here's my conversation with Dr. Schiffer. Dr. Schiffer, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, may I call you Jeffrey? Yes, please do. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, Jeffrey, I uh, I really appreciate you making yourself available. So um, you're an interesting dude. We've met before. We've talked a bit before. Um, you you do have a major failing though, and that is you were not born in Scarborough. Very true. <laughs> uh, Very true. Because <laughs> you know, there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's people who are born in Scarborough, and people who wish they were born in Scarborough. So. Um, but, but, you know, I, I see that over uh, your adult uh, life, you're uh, starting to come closer to um, the center of the universe. So that's always good. That's always good. So, <laughs> so Jeffrey, uh, now that we've established you're not born in Scarborough, where were you born? So I was actually born and raised in unceded Coast Salish territory in what is today known as Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, Mount Pleasant, not too far from City Hall in, in Vancouver. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, and most people who are born have parents. Tell us about your uh, tell us about your mom and dad. Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. So my mother is a woman named Shirley Turcott. Uh, she's a, a Métis person. She was born and raised outside of, uh, of Winnipeg, actually. Uh, that's the Indigenous connection in my family. Uh, she's an interesting woman. My parents actually met in the city of Toronto. I'm not sure that it was Scarborough, but met in Toronto. And uh, yeah, my mother, um, you know, had a very dynamic childhood. In fact, in 1986, the National Film Board of Canada made a documentary on my mom's life story called To a Safer Place. And really, it's about her childhood surviving uh, physical and, and sexual abuse at the hands of her father, in fact. So she grew up in a very complicated home. Uh, and uh, it led her to develop uh, her own system of Indigenous psychotherapy, which really has informed a lot of the work that I do around reconciliation and, and decolonization and working with Indigenous people. My dad was actually born in Germany. Uh, he immigrated mm -hmm. to, to Toronto in the 50s and he grew up here in Toronto where he met my mother. And uh, ultimately, they settled in Vancouver, which is which is where I I was born. Uh, my dad grew up on a farm. He was a builder, a lover of ecology. So I, I spent a lot of time outside with my dad uh, in that in that part of the world, playing in tile pools and learning about ecology. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Well, you're you're a pretty serious academic. You did your undergrad at UBC and your postgrad or um, graduate degrees at Columbia. Uh, so who uh, who gives you the uh, the love of learning? Yeah, you know, I think I take some of that from both my parents. And it's interesting because, you know, neither both my parents grew up on farms. Neither one of them completed post-secondary education. They, they both grew up at a time where they kind of made their careers on their own. Uh, 
Um, and, and from both the perspectives that I gleaned from my parents, I just became very interested in, in Canada and very interested in, in Indigenous peoples and wanting to, you know, learn about uh, how we can live together better. And I remember, uh, you know, I took some time off after, after high school, but I went back and I, I fell in love with cultural anthropology, just happenstance. And, um, and I think it was that, that, um, that love for, for learning about cultural reproduction and, 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 and learning about uh, Canada that led me ultimately to go all the way up to the PhD level. Cultural reproduction, I don't know what that means. You know, it's funny, I, I came here initially to work at the City of Toronto, uh, and I loved the time that I spent at the, at the City as the Indigenous Affairs Consultant. One of the things that I was asked to do there was to create the Indigenous Cultural Competency Training for the City of Toronto. And, you know, I, I would sit in this room and it took me about four months to develop the curriculum. And I would talk to, you know, the directors from various divisions across the city. And I would say, how many of you, how many of you people were here in 1834 when the Toronto Public Service was incorporated? And they would all sort of laugh. And I would say, right, none of you were here uh, when this massive bureaucracy started, right? We, but, but you came into it, right? You came into a system of of bureaucracy and, and policy and procedure that was created long before you, right? So all of us as Canadians, we were born into a world that is shaped by decades and decades of colonization. Um, we can't necessarily hold ourselves account for all of that history, but we do need to understand the way that we reproduce the cultural systems in which we live as human beings, right? Uh, and, and public servants do that in the city of Toronto, our federal colleagues do that. Um, and I'm doing that right now in the context of child welfare. But And the question that I asked those directors at the city of Toronto, I said, given our role in reproducing such important structures, you know, for the city of Toronto, we need to ask ourselves, do we just want to replicate the status quo? Because it's very easy to do that, right? Or do we want to innovate? Do we want to change things, right? And, and I know that I want to innovate. I want to change. And, and, and for me, the type of innovation I'm interested in is, is decolonization and indigenization and how we change systems to better reflect and support Indigenous people. Well, you know, uh, these words indigenization and colonization, they tend to get batted around a lot. So give me some some idea of what you mean when you say colonization and what, what uh, not, a, not so much from the standpoint of, you know, people who are like my ancestors arrive, arrive in, in Canada um, and uh, obviously set up a, a colony. Actually, they were the ones who were being colonized because it was the British government that was colonizing. Sure. Um, but um, but the, it does have uh, the, the words, both ind indigenization and colonization have meanings today and, and bring, bring uh, backgrounds in that, that uh, probably there's not a mutual understanding of, um, of those words. So uh, give me an idea what you mean when you say those words. Yes, gladly. No, and, and, you know, these are academic words. And like you said, there's many different definitions. I've come to understand them in particular ways. And, you know, living in Toronto has been amazing, living in Eastern Canada. In fact, living where, you know, our country started in many ways, right? And and when I think about the initial promise of Canada, I think, um, you know, after the Haudenosaunee Confederacy helped the British, you know, um, you know, win their, their wars and become the European victors of, of, of this part of the world, uh, there was a promise that the promise took shape through treaty. But there was a promise to take all of the innovation and sophistication and worldview from both 
European powers and indigenous ones and bring those together to co-develop a new nation, right? And that's a beautiful dream. It's a beautiful dream, but we, that we, we fell off that path, right? We broke that promise a little bit. And when you think about the structures that I was just talking about us all being complicit in reproducing on a daily basis, most of the structures that we operate in are built, um, they're, they're Eurocentric. They're built on the, the values and the understandings of, of European nations in a particular time and place, right? So decolonization rather than colonization, I think decolonization is a reflective process that requires us to just think about the world that we inhabit and the systems we reproduce and to try to think about where and when do those structures privilege European worldviews over Indigenous ones, right? So you could be in HR at the city of Toronto and you could be trying to hire Indigenous people, but then you realize that you're, you're, um, you're, you're valuing people on the, base of, on the basis of university credentials that don't really value all of the Indigenous knowledge and experience that certain people bring to a role, right? You're thinking about it in a very particular cultural way. So, so decolonization, encourages us to think about that and then reflect on how we can change processes to be more sensitive to and inclusive of Indigenous ways of being. So you might say, well, this candidate for the job, they need to at least have a bachelor's degree or they have to have commensurate experience um, as an Indigenous person working with elders and knowledge keepers and learning certain things that apply to whatever position this is, right? So I think that um, um, I talk about decolonization as the process of recognizing where we need to make change and indigenization as the process of actually making that change of saying, well, okay, we're going to change these rules or guidelines or processes a little bit more to, to reflect indigenous culture, if that makes sense. Actually, it does make sense. Although I'd be interested in knowing what um, your validation points are for that person in HR uh, who um, is looking sympathetically at um, at um, recognizing um, something that is not a degree yeah. uh, as some you know uh, some set of experiences and uh, knowledge that is uh, not uh, not within the the parameters of what, both what you and I would understand to be a, a degree particularly you who, who has three of them Indeed. so <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so um, back me uh, back me through that tell me how uh, that uh, HR person is going to to validate and recognize those kinds of um, experiences. Sure. So I think you know we I back up a little bit sometimes when I'm talking to HR and, and first of all it's the process of being able to under to so to even validate somebody's skill set or competencies you have to first get them to talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. And I often would remind people at the city of Toronto that um, when we look at the value base, so when you go into an interview, you, you gotta sell yourself. You gotta talk about all the really amazing things that you've done and, and how many skills and experiences you bring to the job. And one of the first things I remind people is that um, humility is a really core value for almost every indigenous culture across Turtle Island. Uh, it, wor it, it works in politics as well. It works in politics as well, I'm sure. Okay, so, so, you're, so a lot of people with a traditional upbringing that are Indigenous are not supposed to talk about how awesome they are. And so there's actually been some interesting studies and research done that shows that an Indigenous person and a non-Indigenous person with the same qualifications perform differently in an interview. And often um, the non-Indigenous person 
finds much more ease in talking about their accomplishments and how they will lend themselves to to a workplace whereas an indigenous person is much more humble and, and not quite as likely to talk about um, their skills and experiences but indigenous people are great at telling stories and if you reshape interviews in particular ways and ask people to share stories about themselves you can get at that information so i think the first step of decolonizing and indigenizing an interview if you will is to understand that the current way in which we interview people is based on a certain a certain set of values which presupposes that people love to talk about how great they are and what they've accomplished um, to decolonize that interview process you might make it more of a story you might sit down you might have a cup of tea you might share almost talk like we're talking now and through mm -hmm. that process glean a certain skill set learn about that individual build a relationship right? Indigenous people are built on relationship. And then through that, you've got to then analyze. Um, and it, it's tricky because, so if I was, you know, bringing someone on in the context of social work, uh, they may not have a formal social work degree, but they may have spent lots of times with elders and knowledge keepers, and they may know a lot about traditional kinship structures, raising families from an Indigenous structures, ceremony around Indigenous family, and that might give them almost as much, um, you know, competency within that role, if that makes sense. So so make it, make it personal. How do you listen to that potential interviewee as opposed to, and I'll use myself as an example, as how I would listen to um, that uh, potential uh, interviewee? I guess I would say that listening takes practice. I remember, um, you know, when I when I first started um, working in Indigenous organizations um, and also almost getting mentored by particular elders. You know, when you grow up in the Indigenous community, you'll find that you you form relationships with elders and knowledge keepers. And, and when you do that, it's a very special thing and you get to sit down and you get to have tea and coffee and you just get to listen. And mm -hmm. for me, as being someone who also has spent a lot of time in the academic world and reading comprehension is a very particular skill set and a very particular value and process, I had to learn how to listen differently. I had to learn how to, how to sit down and listen to stories and realize that in this story, which seemed like it maybe didn't have anything to do with what I was talking about or asking about, actually had a lesson in there, actually had some knowledge in there for me. So I tried to, I tried to, to listen uh, in, in a way that um, is attentive to stories and looking for, for um, almost like reading between the lines, listening mm. between the lines of a story, if you will. Isn't that um, interesting? Yeah. You have an interesting teaching relationship with your mother. Um, I can't imagine teaching with either my mother or my father. Um, uh, but um, uh, tell me about that, because as you indicated earlier, she has had, or I suppose still does have, an extraordinary life. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. I never, and it's funny because teaching with my mother is something that I never really thought I wanted to do or really particularly wanted to do. But I, I, I had the opportunity, you know, in my teens and early 20s to, to travel around with her while she was visiting different communities and um, sitting in the classroom while she was teaching and, um, and learning about that. And through that process, you know, I, I really began to understand intergenerational trauma from an Indigenous perspective. Uh, as someone who is, is visibly white, has lots of white privilege, lived a good life, has great university credentials, I've never experienced the type of trauma that my mother has, um, but I can feel it and I experienced it intergenerationally. And it, that's a whole other conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But what I, what I, did, uh, what I did learn, and, and I think what, what, what people in classrooms across the country told us was that there were, they benefited from having a mother and a son who could stand up and, and talk about intergenerational trauma from those two vantage points, right? And so my teaching with my mom really was about 
learning what trauma means from an indigenous perspective and being able to share a family story uh, about the way trauma spills across generations uh, for the benefit of others, right? It's not a comfortable experience or a comfortable process, uh, but so many people in so many communities and so many places across Canada saying that it was beneficial uh, made me kind of feel like I needed to share it to help and be benefit other people. And how how does your mother look at you now? Uh, because you you move in and out of two worlds, really. Um, you're trying to make those worlds. You're trying to reconcile those worlds, but still, you you, you live on uh, on one side and then on the other side. And then you're back on the other side. How does that? How does your mother now look at you? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think that she's I think that she's happy about the work that I'm doing, but also simultaneously understands how difficult Indigenous child welfare is, and we'll probably get to that in a minute. Um, uh, you know, it's um, I think that she's very happy about the work that I do, but also concerned in some ways because it's um, this the role that I currently have at Native Child is without question the most challenging one that I have ever had, um, and um, and and I think she recognizes that a hundred percent. So. Um... Let's, uh, for the moment, imagine that um, we are on Kingston Road in front of your office and we see your your sign out right beside my sign, actually. <laughs> Describe a native child to um, that person at, and, um, and what it does and what's its mission and what's its values and what's its goals. Sure, yeah. I like to start with um, with our service model. And, you know, I always start by acknowledging Ken Richard, who was the founder and, and only other executive director at Native Child, who was with the agency for, you know, over three decades. And I've been very lucky to take over the stewardship of the agency. But, you know, Native Child emerged in the 80s. You know, the agency was incorporated in, in 86. And it's important because that's uh, around the time that the first generation of children were aging out of the 60s scoop, right? We know a lot about the 60s scoop now as Canadians, but in the early 50s, we amended the Indian Act, which enabled provincial child welfare legislation to be extended onto reserve into a federal jurisdiction. And that enabled social workers for the first time uh, to move into reserve territories and, and apprehend children. And we saw a massive apprehension. And, you know, as quickly as residential schools were closing, provincial systems of child welfare were emerging and, and lots of kids were taken. I have family members that were taken in the 60s scoop. My mother was in, in the system. Um, and those kids started aging out and they flooded into the Toronto streets. They were up and down Young Street. They were in Scarborough and a group of uh, elders, knowledge keepers and community advocates came together in the city of Toronto and said, we need an organization to support Indigenous children and families. We need an organization to um, address the aftermath of colonization that we're seeing on a daily basis. Um, on our streets and 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 so they came together in ceremony as indigenous people do and after four days of ceremony and, and fasting and sweating they developed the service model of native child it's a sacred service model which basically says that to address the issues that indigenous children and families are facing in the city of toronto we need an organization that recognizes people holistically mentally physically emotionally spiritually and that wraps families and children and youth in holistic services not only to reduce their um, their the probability that they were enter, enter child welfare or, or reduce the time they're in child welfare, but really to create concrete pathways to wellness and prosperity for them. And so for almost 20 years, our agency was just a prevention agency. We started as a prevention agency doing support services, clinical services, youth services, providing food, uh, childcare, Aboriginal Head Start. Um, and then uh, in, in, in the early 2000s, um, you know, the agency 
uh, took on the child welfare mandate. 2004, we also became a, 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 ch a children's aid society um, so that we could integrate all of those services. And so really our service model is um, we are trying to decolonize child welfare. There's that word again, recognizing yeah. that there is a colonial practice of child welfare, which has been so destructive to indigenous families and recognizing that the way to decolonize that, the way to change that is to integrate very diverse, holistic, culturally grounded services into that model to create better outcomes for families. So, um, so again, again we'll go, we'll go to a practical example where a child has, um, uh, has a very difficult circumstance and, uh, and for want of a better term, uh, is in need of, of child welfare services. Um, and needs to be removed from whatever setting it finds itself. Um, so what is it, uh, what's the essential difference between the way you would deal with uh, a child that is in need of protection as opposed to um, a non-Indigenous child that is in need of protection? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, what a lot of the research and the literature shows um, is that there is still a lot of systemic racism within child welfare, as there is within other professions and fields across, across Canada. And it shows us that social workers, particularly in mainstream agencies, treat Indigenous people and racialized people differently. Uh, there's a lot of stereotypes and inherent bias in that process, right? Um, and that's led to a consistent overrepresentation of Indigenous kids. And so how do we keep them together? How, we, how do we keep them together? How do we um, find opportunities to mitigate risk and keep families together? I mean, being driven towards achieving that in very concrete ways is, is one thing that makes us different. And this is not a Scarborough example, but I will turn to the fact that we opened Toronto's first healing lodge for Indigenous mothers and children uh, last year, shortly before the pandemic. Uh, in downtown Toronto. And this is a house where for the first time, if a mother is struggling with substance abuse and mental health issues that normally would result in her child being apprehended, she can go into this house, a beautiful old Victorian house together with her child, a staffed house and get healing and support in that house so that they stay together, right? They stay together. Mm -hmm. So we recognize that um, there's a lot of other options. We do a lot of in-home support. So if, the, if, if that risk, we feel like that risk can be mitigated by sending staff into the home four or six hours a day, that will also um, um, keep families together. And, and the site that you're referring to, the new site that we've just opened on Kingston Road is an integrated team, right? So many, most mainstream um, children's aid societies just have social workers. They have teams that are composed of social workers, right? Eight social workers and a supervisor. What we have opened in our integrated uh, at our integrated uh, location is a team that is not just composed of social workers. So we have what we call our child and family well-being workers, but we also have violence against women, anti-human trafficking, clinical workers, cultural supports. And so the whole case management process is not happening from a, a traditional social work lens. It's happening from a lens that includes a whole bunch of service providers that are sitting together and saying, What's the best thing for this family, for this child? Um, how can we keep them together? How do we mitigate the risk while ensuring that they, they can stay together, right? And what we find, what our data shows, um, is that in, in, many more, in many more instances, we're able to keep families together, right? Yes, it's true that in some cases we do need to do removals, but when that occurs, um, we minimize that time. And we also try to use kin placements and, and, and keep kids with extended family much more than other agencies do. So, so that is the, if you will, the, 
the core difference between, uh, I'll pick on the Children's Aid Society uh, and yourselves, which is that you want to you exercise a, a number of mitigating strategies before you actually go to the, if you will, the nuclear option of removing the child from its parents. And we have more capacity to do that as a multi-service agency, right? Like the Children's Aid Society of Toronto, of course, tries to minimize removals as best they can, but they don't have as many internal resources to do that as we do, right? Mm -hmm. um, we can provide all of the other supports that I was just mentioning. Sometimes, you know what? Being a parent is hard. Being a single parent with intergenerational trauma is hard. We have found historically that one of the best mitigating factors um, to, to mediate risk in a home, sometimes it's Aboriginal Head Start program. Sometimes mm -hmm. a mom, just needs her little one to go to a safe place for five hours a day to get cultural support so she can have a break, do some laundry, do some grocery shopping, take care of her mental health, participate in some of her own programs, right? So having those multiple services available really do make a big difference. Yeah. Now, um, Scarborough Guildwood has the uh, good fortune of, if you will, being Indigenous Central. Um, Galloway Road and, uh, and Kingston Road is, if you will, the intersection of... Uh, of a lot of indigenous services and and places where indigenous people uh, live, so um, give me a um, an understanding of how your agency would uh, reach into those various uh, communities because you would know where they are probably better than I would know where they are. Yeah, so that we we have had that that our, our Scarborough Child and Family Life Center has been there for quite some time. And, and just by virtue of being in the community, as long as it has, we've developed a really good relationship with the families in and around that area. Gabriel DeMont Housing is right there. Um, many of those families, you know, walk across to our location. Uh, their kids attend our daycare that's in that building, uh, our Aboriginal Head Start, our before and after school programming, our summer camps. Um, and so our philosophy really is to, um, start relationships early and and provide services to to strengthen those families as best we can and, and to be responsive to those families and understand where are the gaps um, because there are still service gaps that, that need to be addressed and when we develop new programs uh, we try to do them through community councils um, to, to continue to provide needs that are unique to that community if that makes sense because you know there's so many different indigenous communities across Toronto they're not homogeneous the needs are different in different areas right. uh, and so we do take a very community-centered approach in our work now, in that do, you, do you involve yourselves uh, for instance in the uh, uh, Eastview Public School um, Indigenous program there or Laurier Collegiate's uh, Indigenous program there as well? We we do. So we have native, uh, we, so we do have, um, you know, we have our native learning centers that are, are part of the TDSB. Um, we do the powwow at, at Eastview School. Uh, we've been doing on the land early on programming uh, for families in, in, in that, in, that go to that school and parks in the area. So we certainly do assert ourselves in as, as much as uh, the community would like, uh, you know, in those different areas. And I think uh, the one thing that we're working on right now is, um, you know, recognizing that this pandemic is having a massive impact on the mental health of families in that area, uh, that self-isolation is mm -hmm. creating a secondary pandemic of poverty and mental health, and in some cases, substance abuse and family violence. Um, we are working with community to increase our, our mental health programming and also hopefully develop a mobile mental health uh, a crisis response unit that can do wellness checks and, and respond to mental health calls in place of the Toronto Police Service. Yeah, it's it's quite ironic and distressingly ironic. There's really it's it's two uh, two pandemics. There's a 
significant portion of the population is not being affected by this pandemic in the sense of of um, uh, declines in income and food insecurity and housing insecurity. And then there is a, a smaller percentage, a, but still a very significant percentage that really is experiencing this pandemic in ways such as you described, mental health, food insecurity. And of course, they all get interlinked. Uh, one leads to another and, and, um, and then you, you, you've got, got real challenges. Yeah. We never sure. delivered food before the pandemic. We never delivered food. In April, we started developing a food hamper program. The families we were supporting didn't even have what they needed to self-isolate, right? right? You can't assume that somebody even has the resources to stay at home during a provincial lockdown. Uh, so we've delivered literally thousands of hampers since the pandemic began, uh, something that we never had to do before. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for uh, talking uh, to me for this past few minutes. Um, uh, the um, the organization of um, Native Child and Family Services is a well-known and well-established. Um, you will be an exemplary. Uh, in fact, you are an exemplary executive director of that organization. Um, I'm very pleased that you've, if you will, moved into the neighborhood. Um, I rather hope, and I do have an agenda here in the sense that um, it would be, I think it would be good for all of us to um, start to understand, and by that I mean, if you will, the non-Indigenous community, uh, to understand uh, not only what you do, but the uh, uh, nature, extent, and breadth of the um, of the Indigenous community in, particularly in Scarborough Guildwood, but Scarborough, uh, Scarborough generally, because it, there, it is a significant population, and, um, and in some measure uh, operates as an as an isolated and independent population. So, um, so I, I appreciate you, you talking to me, Jeffrey. Um, uh, we've been doing this podcast on people who do extraordinary things. And um, you certainly are doing, uh, you and your organization are doing extraordinary things. And uh, I wish you every success and um, certainly whatever... Um, uh, help my office can provide. Um, you're, <laughs> you can just knock on the door. You can walk around the corner and knock on the door. So, um, well, I was going to say you can, you can do that after the pandemic. Right now, you're going to have to <laughs> phone like everyone else. So yeah. again, thank you uh, so much for, um, for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Jimmy Gwich. Thanks for listening to What We Give. I'm John McKay. This podcast was produced by Amanda Capito, with support from Layla Sharif and Janissa Loss. If you want to stay up to date with Scarborough Guildwood writing, sign up for the newsletter on johnmckay.libfarrell.ca.